This is Gareth Southgate and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello there and welcome to episode 21 of the Three Lions podcast. Been a little while, sorry about that, but it's getting ever so close now, isn't it? At time of recording and releasing, Russia 2018 is now about a month away. My name's Russell Osborne and boy, have we got a busy episode for you. Can't say it'll have a stellar cast as the last one, which incidentally, thank you for all your kind words that you've sent about that one. Many have said that hearing Gareth Southgate speak the way he did was refreshing, something I thought too. But this time, we talk Wembley, Nigeria, Free Lions, and we journey back to Bologna, 1990. So what's happened since we last spoke? England have announced two new friendlies against Switzerland on the 11th of September with the venue still to be decided, but it's on the road. And we'll play the USA at Wembley on the 15th of November. Spain, away in the Nations League, has been announced by the Spanish media as being in Seville, in Real Betis ground. You lucky people if you're going to that one. Uh, Although it has to be said, our own FA haven't confirmed this yet. England blind team were also in action in a double header against Spain, winning 2-0 on the 24th of April. Two penalties, one from Dan English and one from Brandon Coleman. However, the next day, they lost 2-1. Roy Turnham getting the England goal there. As it happens, the draw for the IBSA Blind Football World Championships took place recently, and they're going to be held in June in Madrid. England have been drawn in Group D alongside Brazil, Costa Rica and Mali. Looks like we'll have another tournament to talk about in June. And on the player front, Sad news for Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, injured in Liverpool's semi-final against Roma. Picked up a knee ligament injury, ruling him out of the World Cup. It'll be interesting to see who profits from the Ox misfortune. Does the door open for John Joe Shelby or Ruben Loftus-Cheek? And it is misfortune for Oxlade-Chamberlain. Whilst he was in the squad for the last World Cup and travelled, he never saw sight of the pitch due to injury. Joe Gomez also of Liverpool, ruled out too after undergoing ankle surgery, that for an injury he picked up against Holland in March. Whilst as far as I'm aware, it's not confirmed yet, but things aren't looking good either for Adam Lallana and John Stones too. Gareth Southgate's going to have some tough decisions to make very soon when he whittles down his 23. We'll probably take a look at that next time around. All of a sudden, our national stadium was in the news towards the end of April, as Fulham chairman and owner of the NFL side Jacksonville Jaguars, Sadiq Khan, put in an offer to purchase the stadium from the FA. Reportedly, he's offered £600 million to own the stadium, and the FA would continue to run the Club Wembley side of things at a cost of around £300 million. 
initially seemed to cause a big stir, and I was a bit stunned and confused. Should this be in the hands of someone else? And I naively thought that Wembley was almost paid for. Not so. If the FA carry on paying for it at the current rate they are, it will be paid off by 2024. And I thought, is this really a big thing? Across the globe, England and the FA are in the minority of owning a stadium that the national team play at at a regular basis. In fact, the FA have only owned the stadium since 1999. As I say, still paying it off. Previously, under the guise of the Twin Towers, it was owned by the Wembley Company. Obviously, Khan wants to put the Jaguars at Wembley, and the NFL has been played at Wembley since 2007, so it's pretty much a permanent autumn fixture now with sold-out attendances. Wembley is more than the home of football. Concerts fairly regular there. Let's not forget the London Monarchs used to play there, remember them? Along with dog racing, rugby league, boxing, loads of different sports have been at Wembley. Khan seems to want to upgrade it as well, which can't be a bad thing. Although he's mentioned a roof, which I'm not so sure is necessary. May mean that a few more England games will go on the road. Something that Gareth Southgate alluded to in the recent fans forum. Again, not a bad thing in my opinion. Don't know what's going to happen to the Wembley semi-finals, but I think I know what the general opinion will be on that. Khan also said, that the FA will have a pool of money of about £600 million that can be invested into their core mission of the FA, which is English football and their ultimate goal of winning a World Cup. So he's saying the right things, isn't he? My one dilemma would be, though, with all this money that's been banded about, what's going to happen with the money from the sale? It's been said that much of it will be filtered down to grassroots level, and as a children's football coach myself, I'm excited about the prospect of this. In the past, many matches I've taken have been cancelled from November through to March due to insufficient playing surfaces and I've seen some poor facilities too. If more artificial pitches, 3G, 4G are available, then this can only be a good thing. The FA appear to be open on this purchase, so watch this space. It's caused some debate. Troy Ball on the Facebook page said, if it can help English football in any way, they need to get it done. Hugo Malim with a similar opinion. Fair play to the FA if they sign this deal. No more debt and a lot to spend at grassroots level. Rob Robinson offered a different opinion. It'll be back up for sale in a couple of years when the American realises he can't make any money out of Wembley. Whilst Gary Jordan said, I don't think it'll change the way Wembley is used much. After all, Khan is a businessman first and this is an investment for him which I guess is the current world we live in. Everything is purchasable. The Under-17s European Championships are currently taking place right here in England. Of course, England were the runners-up in the last European Championships and they lifted the World Cup in India last October. England kicked things off Thursday the 4th of May at Chesterfield's Proact Stadium. Manchester City's Tommy Doyle got the first goal of the game and the tournament with a penalty after Saka was brought down only for Israel to equalise just before half-time with another penalty. Lots of second-half pressure saw England get the winning goal. Huddersfield's Matty Daly with a guided home strike. From across from Vontae Daly-Campbell. Captain Jimmy Garner striking the post with 10 minutes remaining two. 
Steve Cooper's boys up and running in the best possible way. Bank holiday, Monday the 7th of May, Walsall's Bescott Stadium. I took the opportunity of a free bank holiday to head to Walsall for this game. England against Italy. I was there along with 7,159 others. Following the previous Israel game, word had got out this was a team to watch. On the hottest day of the year so far, England started very, very brightly. Full of energy, done extremely well to keep it up for 80 minutes. However, it was the Italians that took the lead following a mistake at the back. And that's how it stood until half-time. Second half, England came out with the same energy and facing the two-tiered stand that I was sat in, England pushed and probed and on 63 minutes, Nottingham Forest's Arvin Appiah picked up the ball and drove towards goal, unleashing it into the Italian net. Great individual effort. Six minutes later, Tommy Doyle scored from the spot after Tulloch was brought down. Doyle with a carbon copy penalty as his one against Israel. Great afternoon. Great result, well done. And Thursday the 10th of May, the Young Lions went into this knowing that a point would see them through following their two previous 2-1 victories. Wasn't to be though, as they went down by a goal to nil at the hands of Switzerland. They did progress through to the last eight though, as Group A runners-up behind Italy. In fact, Italy, England and Switzerland all finished on six points. England finishing ahead of the Swiss with a better goal difference. England will face Norway in the quarter-final at Burton Albion on Sunday the 13th of May. It's just before I record this podcast, so good luck to the boys there. Like the Young Lions in the under-17s, the Young Lionesses were also in action in their under-17s European Championships. These were taking place in Lithuania, and England kick-started on Wednesday the 9th of May. England versus Poland. They came from behind to lead against Poland, only then to concede in the last minute in a 2-2 draw. Goals from Manchester City's Jess Park, who was captain, and Birmingham City's Paris McKenzie. They moved on to Saturday the 12th of May, England against Spain. Again, the girls went a goal down, this time after four minutes. Back in it on 26 minutes when Ebony Salmon of Aston Villa got the equaliser. However, with 10 minutes remaining, Spain retook the lead and that's how it ended, 2-1. England stuck on one point and Spain will be through with a draw against Poland in their next game and they could even afford to lose if Italy do not beat England. As for England... They must win and hope Poland do not beat Spain. We'll reflect on that last game, England against Italy, in our next podcast. (music) 
Let's get back to the men's seniors. The 2nd of June sees England back at Wembley for the last time before heading off to Russia. In anticipation of that, I spoke with Kalichi Bernard, a Nigerian sports blogger. Here's what was said. Okay, we are here. It's the Three Lions podcast. We've got England against Nigeria coming up on Saturday, the 2nd of June. We're recording this a little in advance of that because of circumstances that have come up. But I am delighted to be joined uh, by Kalichi Bernard, a Nigerian sports blogger. And he's joining us uh, live from Nigeria, from, from Lagos. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Russell from Lagos. That's the commercial uh, city of Nigeria. Not the capital. The capital is in Abuja. Okay. Well, well how is Lagos today? Uh, Lagos is fine. It's cool. Um, right now it's sunny. Uh, I guess it's also obtainable down there in England. You know, it's like it's a city full of noise, full of um, loudness and um got some crazy supporters of football teams right here in Nigeria. We've got some crazy supporters of um, teams based in England. And again, um, the biggest team definitely on their minds should be the Super Eagles of Nigeria, their campaign in the 2018 FIFA World Cup um, in Russia. But again, the big one coming up against England is also very, very, very huge on the minds of the Super Eagles supporters. And I tell you, we are rooting for the Eagles to beat the three Lions. <laughs> that's that's great to hear. So, Gunnar, let's talk about the the game coming up at Wembley. What are your feelings for that game? Well, my feelings are this. I think it's a good game. The last time we met England in a friendly was way back in 1994, after Nigeria took part in their first FIFA World Cup in the United States of America, where we qualified for the round of 16. I mean, and the team was buzzing after the World Cup in the USA. Um, we lost to Italy marginally, I think 2-1 in the second round. And uh, that game was a fraught with all kinds of talking points, the Nigerian team being inexperienced. But back home in Nigeria, we still believe um, it was like a golden generation for the Nigerian team because ever since Nigeria took part in the, in the World Cup in 1994, we've not actually had teams in previous, okay, in subsequent World Cups closer to that very team that took part in 1994. So the first friendly against England was, um, I think, sometime in November in 1994. Um, we had um, the great image, J.J. Okocha, Wanderers. We also had Uche Kuchuku, we used to call him Gentle Giant, um, right here in Nigeria. We, um, we had some good players, if you need the George, Manana Munike, that played against the England team. Um, that had the likes of uh, Tim Flowers in goal. Um, David Platt also was in that team. Steve McLean was in that team. So ever since then, I think any friendly against England for me is like a glamour friendly. And um, you know, we've we've got huge Nigerian community in England, a huge one. I think Nigeria should be the um, the only African country with the biggest community in England. I think it should be. So that's why. The game against England um, next next month should be a one everybody is anticipating, everybody is looking forward to. I think it's a game I'm looking forward to because I really want the Super Eagles to do so well, you know, in the twenty in the twenty eighteen FIFA World Cup in Russia. So, so the game against England for me it should be an opportunity for some youngsters who are also hungry to break into the Nigerian team to go down there text their skills against some renowned stars on the English roster, like the likes of um, um, Sterling, 
Kyle Walker, many of your goalkeepers, whether it's Hart or Butland, we don't know, and some, you know, some other stars. And so it, it should be a wonderful opportunity for the Nigeria Superbrigos to go down there, rub shoulders with these um, big stars from England, and let's see how we will, you know, take care of business in Russia. Uh, we've got plenty of players that are in the the Premier League over here, um, who who are yeah. likely to turn out for the the Nigerian national team. We've got Wilfred Nadidi of Leicester, Victor Moses of Chelsea, uh, Alex Awobi of Arsenal, and Kalichi Inicio who's also at Leicester. Are you, are you likely to think they're going to be playing? Yeah, um, I think the the players you just mentioned right now are like um. Superstars for the I mean, these players, Kalichi Hanacho, Wilfred Ndidi, um, Victor Moses, we call him Vic Moore, right here in Nigeria, and um, the other young man, that's Alex Iwobi for Arsenal. These guys were also hugely instrumental in Nigeria's qualification for the 2018 FIFA World Cup. I think they are, they are the players we are banking on. Um, to take care of business in Russia. And they also understand the English culture. So we should do against England because they know the terrain. They've been there for a long while. They understand exactly how the game goes in England. So definitely we'll be relying big time, mightily on these players you just mentioned earlier um, to um, in this friendly against England. And you mentioned that game, Nigeria, game back in 1994, 1-0. For England, David Platt got the goal from that, and I'm actually going to play the audio of that goal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> again, the show, it. Again, England send the uh, heavy artillery forward from defence. Platt, the captain scores, and Nigeria lose the place at a free kick. David Platt making his run behind Alan Shearer. As the ball came in, he got the touch that mattered. Um, but we also met. It's one of these circumstances where there's only been two fixtures between the two nations and there's been more fixtures than goals because the other fixture was, of course, during the World Cup of 2002 where we met in the, in the group stages where it was a nil-nil draw. Do you remember that one? Yeah, um, yeah, it was a last group game before the game against England. Nigeria had been eliminated, so it was like a dead rubber for Nigeria. England had already booked their place in the next round, so I do remember that very game. Um, it was a game that um, we actually um tried some youngsters, Vincent Enyama, our goalkeeper. Do you remember? Do you know, do you know who, who it is? No, Vincent Enyama. Okay, it, it was his first game for Nigeria. And um, he was then a home base player. He was playing. He was playing his trade in Nigeria. Then coach just gave him the chance to be in goal for Nigeria against England, and he pulled off some marvelous saves in goal for Nigeria. So that's somehow marked. That that somehow, you know, cemented his place. You know, for him in the Super Eagles. I think right now he is um, one of the players with the highest number of appearances for the Super League, like 101 caps for the Eagles. Right now he is in in France. And with Lille, but he's, he's out of favour. In that game against England in 2002, earlier it was a dead rubber because Nigeria had been bonded out of the competition before then. And we played against the likes of um, Beckham, played against a very strong England team that beat Argentina, right? That's right. Yeah, so I think it was a game we actually looked forward to and um, we enjoyed ourselves. I mean, despite getting knocked out of the you mentioned uh, Argentina there. 
Argentina, you, you, Nigeria have yeah. a bit of a bit of a history against, don't you? You've been drawn against them in this World Cup. You were drawn against them in the last World Cup, but you beat them in November time, didn't you? Yeah, we beat them. Um, but despite the victory uh, for Nigeria against Argentina, there was no Messi for Argentina. So people are still referencing the fact that Lana Messi of Barcelona didn't play that game. So maybe we played against an understrength um, national team from Argentina. Yes, we, we have a history with the, the Argentine. At the Olympic Games, I think that should be in, tw- in 2000. And I can't remember the date, but I think we played against Argentina in the final game. And then we had um, our good players also on our roster. Argentina had Lionel Messi. So we've got a long history of Argentina, Nigeria, friendlies, competitive football. It was good. It was like a, a friendly um, that somehow let us understand what kind of team we've got in you know, going into the World Cup. In the World Cup proper in 2018, this time around, Lionel Messi will be um, on the roster for Argentina. And um, Ganero, the Super Eagles and Technical Avenger, as you guys, I mean, call it in England, definitely should have devised a team or maybe a system to like, because he can't stop Lionel Messi. He is like um, the god of soccer. Because you you start in Group D, Nigeria against yeah. Croatia, and then you face Iceland, and we, we don't need to be reminded about Iceland after what happened a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, you finish with Argentina. Yeah. Can you get to that round of 16? Oh, it's a very tough question. I mean, that's one question that has been asked everywhere right here in Nigeria. Can Nigeria um, not even get into the round of 16, even better? Because our biggest record when it comes to, I mean, participation in the FIFA World Cup is the round of 16. So people right here in Nigeria are asking, can't we get to the semi-final? Ghana got to the quarter-final and lost to Uruguay in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. And um, Cameroon also got to the qu- I mean, quarterfinal and lost to you guys to England. I think the 1990 World Cup in Italy. So um, this, the, the present bunch of the Super Eagles of Nigeria for me, it's young. They are hungry. The question right now is that they are a bit inexperienced. And you need experience to actually you know, play at the highest level of football, which is the World Cup. You need experienced players you know, to play for you to get... Um, to the latter stages of the competition. So that's where I have my doubts. But I think I'm wanting to get, I mean, to the I mean, quarterfinal. I think maybe a win against um, Croatia. Then our next game would be, I think, against Iceland. Iceland are also very, very dangerous proposition. But I think we can handle them. We can handle them. I don't know how you guys could handle them. Uh, the Euros, Nigeria definitely through to the round of 16, I think. Thank God we're playing our last group game against Argentina by then. Maybe we must have um, wrapped up our uh, two opening games. Well, I wish you all the very best. Um, tell me about your website. My website is Wura Mangra. Wura Mangra is, you know, it's still my, my name on Twitter and also um, the handle I also have on all my social media platforms on Instagram. It's a, it's a sports website, you know, uh, so I do all kinds of things. I throw in football, I throw in um, basketball, I throw in table tennis. But majorly, I, you know, football, Nigeria is a football mad nation, so you need to feed the masses exactly with what they are actually yearning for or calling for. So it's majorly a football website. You know, I want to hear about um, gossips about um, gossips about 
maybe some players, maybe drinking, clubbing, and getting into problems. You know, <laughs> so things like that. You should, you should understand. You should understand. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what my website is all about. Okay. Well, I tell you what, we'll put a, uh, a link to that on our on our Facebook page, and we'll put it out on Twitter as well. Yeah. Kenichi, I wish you all the very best for the World Cup. Perhaps not so for the friendly mm-hmm. against England. Thank you very much for being part of the Free Lions podcast. Thanks a lot. Cheers. All the best. Interesting stuff from Kalichi there. Hope you enjoyed it. A link to his blog will be up on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Now, another chat I've been wanting to get for a little while. This time with the Football Supporters Federation Chairman, Kevin Miles. If you've ever picked up a copy of the Free Lions, whilst away on England duty, listen up. Okay, I'd like to welcome to the Three Lions podcast, it's the FSF Chief Executive, it's Kevin Miles. Hello, Kevin. Good evening. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm very well. Obviously, uh, I've had a very interesting day. I've been giving evidence to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee about the Foreign Officers' preparations for the World Cup in Russia. Ah, so busy, busy. There's more to you than meets the eye. Was, was it an interesting meeting? Is there anything you can tell us? Uh, it, 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 was, it was interesting. There were three witnesses give it all together um, as a team, giving evidence to the MPs who wanted to know basically how much the events around the, you know, the Salisbury poisoning and you know, the general strain relations that there's been between the two countries, how much impact they've had on what the Foreign Office usually does and what all of us usually do in preparing for a tournament. So I was there with a representative of the police uh, and a representative of the Football Association, just basically sharing our experiences about how things have gone so far. I see. And so that's under the, the FSF banner, is it? Yeah, I was... Uh, we operate a very uh, close you know, partnership in preparing for tournaments like this. I've been involved in the uh, pre-visits to Russia, uh, which is a joint effort. I obviously go to prepare the ground for the guidebook that we produce and the Free Lions fanzine. But we travel together with the FA, the FA security team and the police, the British police. And we link up with the foreign embassy, you know, the British embassy staff out there. And have a series of you know, visits to the stadiums, visits to the cities, series of meetings with the local organising committee, the, the host cities, with the local police forces. Uh, and that's like the standard routine we've been doing for years now. Obviously in Russia, that's been particularly interesting because uh, halfway through the process, the British Foreign Office staff who've been involved in that right from the start for a couple of years now have all been expelled from the country. They've not been able to, uh, you know, to carry on in exactly the same way. So they're, they're still trying to provide the same service to England fans who are going to travel out there, but they're doing it you know, with one arm tied behind their back, basically, by being based in London, not Moscow. Do you anticipate that being a, an issue with in the situation for England fans? Um, well, I hope not. I mean, they're optimistic that come the tournament itself, it'll be in the interest of both the Russians and of ourselves to make sure that there are consular staff drafted in temporarily to help with any issues that English fans might have. Am I right in saying then that you've been out there regularly? Specifically related to the World Cup, I've done three trips uh, in which I've managed now to cover all of the venues that England could play in. So I've visited them all at least once. Uh, 
The first one was out of the Confederations Cup last year, where I went to one game in each of the four cities that they were using there, which was St. Petersburg, Moscow, Sochi, and Kazan. Right. And then in the beginning of February this year, we visited, the, the delegation went out to visit the three group stage venues. Uh, in other words, the three places that England will definitely play in the World Cup this summer, which is you know, Volgograd, Nizhny Novgorod, and Kaliningrad. There was a limit to how useful it was, I have to say, because it was freezing. It was, uh, I think we were in Volgograd, it was minus 28 degrees. You don't wander around the streets a lot in those sort of temperatures. It's also a little bit deceptive because the whole place was covered in snow and had been for months. Yeah. Um, the rivers were frozen everywhere we went, everywhere. So there were things that we'd expect in the summer. They have a lot of bars and stuff that pop up in the summer months, but clearly there's not a lot of passing trade. From that point of view, it was a bit a bit limited, but we did get out to see you know each of the three cities in the, in the group stage. And then on the day that we were coming back, that was the day which the events in Salisbury took place. Right. So there was a little bit of a feeling of we might have got out of here just at the right time. And then when we went back in the beginning of April, I went to visit the two remaining venues that I hadn't been to, which England could play in, right. which are Rostov and Samara. It was a bit warmer. Um, you could actually see it at the place. You could wander around and have a look. I'd say it's a bit warmer. Samara, the River Volga there, was still frozen. So how, how many of these visits or, or European um, championships visits have you done in the past? Has is, is this Russian one been a bit harder because of circumstances? Well, I, th- I think I worked out this is the 12th tournament abroad that I've worked on because I feel like I've been doing this a long time. I mean, that's the first tournament I started doing this for the with the Fans Embassy, was France 98. And the, the, the first game I ran at Fans Embassy abroad at was the uh, the first England game in Marseille in 1998. Three in at the deep end there. Well, yes, it, it was a bit lively. Since uh, it's evolved, I think you know the partnership, the credibility that fans organisations have got now with the authorities of having a really constructive role to play, uh, I think has grown. We were pretty much outsiders in France 98, We've become much more integrated in the process now. I think there's a general recognition that having a fan's point of view represented in all those meetings and the procedures makes a big difference. It was interesting talking to the MPs and stuff today because it's the first time I can remember when the main focus of the MPs has been not about how do we stop English fans causing problems abroad, instead of which it was much more how do we protect English fans. Do you find that there's... Other nations have got a, a similar setup to yourselves as, as we do. It's like the Germans got a uh, an equivalent, or the, or the Spanish. Do they look after their supporters in the way that that you try to? Well, the, the, the Germans definitely do. Uh, the Germans have started did fans embassies start at about the same time as the English one did. I mean, I didn't start the English one. The English fans embassy started in Italian ninety, and the German right. one started at the same sort of time. So the Germans and ourselves have done it on a regular basis. Um, Did you tap into them? Yeah, we have regular contact with them. We all, we're all part of a network of Football Supporters Europe. Where the, right. It's pretty much what it says on the tin. It's a network of European fans organisations. And we've always had regular contact with the, with the Germans. So there will be venues in Germany, in Russia, that we go to where the Germans will already have played. So if we get to Kazan, for instance, in the quarter yeah. final, then the Germans will already have played there. So we'll be able to speak to them and find out what their experience has been, what we need to watch out for. If there's 
you know, anything that you particularly recommend. So there's a lot of sharing of experience like that. We and the Germans run a very similar operation with a fanzine that we produce, a telephone helpline, your websites, guide material, teams of volunteers out there, that sort of thing. Because we're from a fans organisation and we are independent of the authorities, yes, we work in partnership with them, but ultimately they don't decide what we say. And so we can be completely honest with fans. And I think we've built up over the years a credibility that people know they can come to us if they've got a problem. And the, the advice that we give is objective. It's, uh, in the, you know, it's independent of the authorities. I remember what, on that very first fans embassy I did, and I remember there's a couple of lads came up the fans embassy then, asked us, can you tell us what time's the last train to Toulouse after the game? You know, long before the internet and Googling stuff and this sort of thing. Yeah. So we were, we had a copy of the French SNCF timetable, the book, yeah. and we looked it up for them. We said, oh, look, the last train's at midnight. And in which these lads said, yeah, that's right. That, that's what they told us at the station, but we, we didn't believe them. They could be lying to us. But these lads, because it was an English fans organisation was telling them, they were prepared to believe us, whereas a French railway employee... That, that information might be a bit dodgy. <laughs> no, great service you provide as well. I had experience just a simple one when um, I had a flag that was stolen in South Africa. You kindly put a, um, oh, it's like a little shout out in one of the Freelines publications whilst it was out there. Didn't get the flag back, but the fact that you you listened to my predicament and and acted upon it and, and the communications that I had with, with you guys at the time was was great. Well, that's great to have another semi-satisfied customer. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about the Free Lions, which to me is is part of the it's part of the quintessential part of of doing England away. You go and get your match ticket, you grab your copy of the Free Lions, be it from a central point in the city, or or if there's any left in the ticket pickup, pick it up, and usually it's have a, have a quick flick through it into the back pocket. Often see people in in bars, restaurants. And everyone's got a copy of the Free Lions, and and it's almost like a uh, almost like a collector's item. I've I've probably got more than I haven't got. Tell us about Free Lions. Well, um, the, the Free Lions it started actually with a different name. We call it the Lowdown. We we launched it at the Euro, Euro two thousand in Holland right. and Belgium. It was designed as a means of trying to get information out to people. And again, of course, back in those days, you couldn't tweet stuff out. You didn't do Facebook updates. Getting stuff out was the way that things were done back in those days. So that, that's what we did. And it was you know, very modest. I think it's, as you say, it's become part of the furniture now. It's actually named, we had a competition to name it, which is where the Free Lines name came. And I think it was from uh, edition five or six, I think it got the name Free Lines. And it's been published since, since then. I, I have issue 156 in front of me from the recent Holland game. How, how long does it take to put something like this into to place? This is a, what is it, 16-page pages. Well, I mean, it, it's very much a team effort. So um, we have proper grown-up professional journalists who write the football stuff. We've got the quizzes that Scousefield does. Go on. I, I like, the, like the quizzes. I must admit, I, I do head to the, the music quiz quite early on. It's almost like a, uh, a Radio 2's Popmaster for me, if I if I don't get more than seven or eight, then I'm disappointed. Well, it, it, I mean, Scousefield does them as well, um, and you can you can almost tell exactly how old he is from some of the questions he writes and what his musical tastes are. And, and all that I think we must be of a similar age, I reckon. Uh, but I mean, those bits are, if if you like, the, the, and the, you know, the quiz, even the word search at the back and all that sort of stuff. It's 
it's almost like the sugar coating to make it entertaining and that sort of thing. But the essential core of it is the guide material in the middle, which lets people know where they stand, what the rules are, where to go, where to drink, what to avoid. All the same sort of questions. We try and provide as many of those answers as we, as we can. So, I mean, how long does it take to do one? Well, let's put it this way. At a tournament, we'll do a fresh one for every game. While everybody else is celebrating in uh, Volgograd after we've you know, had a thoroughly convincing victory in the opening game, yeah. there'll be a little select group of us who rush back to the hotel ready to write the magazine for the next game. We'll have our journalists at home who watch the match on the telly and written the match commentary. Some of the guide material we'll have had prepared in advance will lift it from the guidebook which we're producing, which is out in the next few weeks. We normally turn that around in 24 hours. It's then going to get sent off and then we have to send the files off to a printer who has to print it and then get it delivered to the next venue within another 24 hours. You must have sourced printers then across across Russia already then, have you? We have, yeah. We're just in the middle of finalising the, the contracts for that now. The problem is in Russia, because the geography is, the place is so big, we cannot count on producing all of them in one place and having them delivered in time to the next city. I mean, it, it was tempting to try and get them all printed with a printer in Moscow and then ship them out, but you just they just couldn't guarantee to get them there. So we ended up with a printer in each city. In the title as well, Free Lions, this is all done for nothing for us, the supporters. That's the principle. Now, obviously, it's not free to do, and it, it's funded by government, to be fair. Um, the Home Office, uh, we're as vulnerable to government spending cuts as anybody else is. That's one of the reasons why we no longer do them for home games, because the, the Home Office argued. And, and to be honest, I take their point that the travel information is not quite as crucial for a game at Wembley as it is for your know, game in Almaty or Baku. Or, yeah. so, but this, they continue to fund it for the away games. And I think it's really important that it's a paper magazine. People, I still think, read the magazine when they're out there in a way that they wouldn't go and then look up on a website or follow a Twitter feed or, or whatever else. You can supplement it with up-to-date stuff by electronic media, by all means. But I think the paper version is an important thing. And one of the reasons it's important is it gives us a pretext and a reason to talk to people. We will talk, my team of volunteers will talk to most England fans when they're out at a game, whether it's a tournament or an individual match, while we're dishing the magazines out, while we're distributing them. And there's lots of little conversations. We don't have big debates with all of them, but we, we, there's a lot of conversations about how have you been, how did you get here, when did you arrive, and that sort of thing, which means that the information flows not all in one direction. It's not just us telling people about the city that they've come to, but we're also finding out about what their experience has been. And it's also, I mean, you'll have noticed this, also you've, you've travelled you know, around matches. Because it's like a little moving village that goes around the place with you know, the English fans, a lot of people know yeah. each other. If you don't know my name, you recognise each other and all that. But there's a proper, and like every village, it's got a gossip network. And there's <laughs> yeah. a proper rumour mill of rumours that go around. We find out what those rumours are because we're talking to so many people. And because we're just fans, people talk to us in a way that you wouldn't necessarily talk to anybody else. But because of that, we, f we find out what the rumours are, but we've also got connections into the authorities so we can find out if they're true or not. You know, by, we, we've actually managed to present, help prevent a few problems by just clarifying what's actually going on. I remember once in Geneva, we played Argentina in Geneva a few years ago. Oh, yes. There was somebody staggered out of a pub drunk and got hit by a tram. Right. Uh, they walked past. Now, we were so drunk, 
he got taken off the hospital just to have a look at him, but he was fine. But the word got round that there was an English fan in hospital. And before very long, the rumour had continued to go around, there's an English man fan being put in hospital. And then it was, it must have been Turks. Right. And there was all sorts of things. Oh, we need to be on our guard about this. The Turks are after us. There was even talk about, we need to go and get these Turks. And it was all based on Chinese whispers. Now, we were able to find out exactly what had happened, find out that the bloke was okay, there wasn't a problem, nobody died, nobody had been attacked, and managed to spread the word out and calm things down. Now, you can imagine if that had got out of hand, the headlines that there would have been about English fans and behaviour and all that sort of stuff, and how we would all have suffered as a result of that. I think that's one of the reasons why a paper magazine is really important. I just can't imagine me going up to people on the street and saying, hello, have you read my website? I totally agree. He's got all the information in there. Just looking back at the, the Amsterdam one, you welcome to Amsterdam. It tells you a bit about the history of the city, previous games, and the piece on the ground, getting to the ground. It, it all flows within. And then you turn the page, you mention about accommodation, that's there. It, it's a piece of information that, as I say, I've seen people sitting, reading, talking over a pint with their mates. It's what I do with my with people I travel with with England games. Well, you can always tell a newbie at a game. Uh, we noticed that Amsterdam was a lot of young'uns at the first match and all that sort of yeah. thing. And you always tell, because you try to give them a fancy and they don't know what it is. You know, the regular travellers, it's become part of the furniture over the years. It's been, you know, you'd expect to see it. That, and, uh, and long may you continue. Your day-to-day was was meeting MPs. What's, what's tomorrow's agenda? So what have we got tomorrow? Tomorrow I've got to go and visit a new office because we're, we're trying to get a new office in, in London for the FSF. The FSF obviously deals with a lot more than just England. We're organising a survey of our members to find out what people think about the sale of Wembley. It's actually something we've spoken about earlier on in the podcast. Yeah, it's a, well, we're going to basically find out what, what people actually think because but our opinion, the FSF's opinion, is the opinion of members. I don't think any of us had foreseen Wembley being sold. No, we've not had a chance to debate what the policy is, so I'm not going to make it up. We're going to ask members what they think. The soundings we've got so far, it's not cut and dried. I think there's a there's a lot of people welcome the idea that you take the match of the England home games around the country. There's a lot of cynicism about you know, the FA and their motivation. Can you guarantee that the money would go to grassroots football? Already in the surveys and stuff we've done, that England never used to own the, their own stadium. There are very few countries have their own national stadium. And all the way up till, what, the 2004 or whatever, when, when Wembley was built, the old Wembley wasn't owned by the FA. Yeah. So we didn't have a national stadium before then. So it's it, it's quite an emotive subject, but there's lots of different viewpoints and we have to find out what most people think if we're going to represent them properly. How can people connect with you? How can they find out more about you, about, about the FSF, about the Free Lions? Membership of the FSF is free to individuals. So anybody can join you go to the website, it's easy. So there's a recruitment form on the website, you join there. The minimum commitment is you tell us your name, you tell us your email address, what team you support, which club you support, yeah. and you sign up for the newsletter. That's the minimum requirement. And that's, is that fsf.org.uk? It is, yep, correct. It's even better when you say it than me plugging it, but uh, that's right. You know, we have a presence on Facebook and Twitter and all that, you can follow what we're up to on that. Great stuff. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, wish you all the very best for putting put the publications together throughout the World Cup and uh, the ongoing communications you'll have with uh, with Russian authorities and the government. 
Um, hope it doesn't prove to be too much of a headache. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. And I'll see you in Russia. Yes, you will do. Now, time for our occasional lookbacks. This time, we're going back to the 26th of June, 1990. New Order's World in Motion was blaring from radios across the country. England had drawn against Ireland and Holland and beaten Egypt to make it to the first knockout stage of the World Cup. Belgium were the opposition, having come through their group, beating South Korea and Uruguay, but losing to Group E winners, Spain which meant they finished as runners-up. The stage was set within Bologna's Stadio Renato Dallara. Belgium were in fact fifth seeds ahead of England when the draw was made. And I remember as a 12-year-old boy looking at that Red Devil side thinking, we don't really have a chance here. They got players like Michel Prudhomme in goal, Eric Gerrits, Enzo Schifo, Marc de Greiser, Jan Koulemans and Nico Klaassen, who'd previously been at Tottenham, was on the bench. In hindsight, this was probably one of the best Belgium teams up until now. England's starting eleven that evening was Peter Shilton, Mark Wright, Paul Parker, Des Walker, Terry Butcher, Stuart Pearce, Chris Waddle, Steve McMahon, Paul Gascoigne, John Barnes and Gary Lineker. At 9 o'clock local time in intense heat and in front of only 34,500, unheard of now for a World Cup game, this was the last round of 16 match to be played. Earlier in the day, Yugoslavia had knocked out Spain and the papers were full of Ireland's penalty victory over Romania from the previous day. England started nervously, Shilton having to save early, Kuhlemans hitting the post after only 14 minutes. Van der Elst. De Greiser. Good little turn. Kuhlemans. Oh, Kuhlemans! Then England got a foothold in the game. John Barnes having an effort disallowed for offside. Clearly not. Waddle. Lineker to his right. Barnes offside. Offside. Won't count. Sorry, John Barnes. No goal. Then in the second half, Shifo had an effort cannon off the post with Shilton beaten. And Shifo shoots. Oh, he's hit the inside of the post with a fabulous effort. And England are so lucky. Enzo Shifo producing one of the moments of the World Cup. For 90 minutes, both teams cancelled each other out and Danish referee Peter Mickelson blew for the end. Extra time came and David Platt, who'd come on as a 71st-minute substitute for Steve McMahon, had a great effort on the turn in the first half of extra time but went just wide of the post. Steve Bull, also a sub, replacing John Barnes, had a go from the edge of the D, which Prudhomme palmed away. Despite the intense heat, with a minute left of extra time, Paul Gascoigne still had something in the tank, picking the ball up deep in the England half and surging forward, only to be brought down between the centre circle and the edge of the D. He himself took a long run up, looking to shoot, but supposedly... Bobby Robson shouted from the touchline, just ping it into the box. This is Gascoigne, did well. Bull is up front, Lineker is over on the right wing. Herrick's challenges Gascoigne, free kick given. 
to England. Good position. A minute left. It's Gascoigne shaping to take it. And chipped in. And volleyed in! And it's there by David Platt! England have done it in the last minute of extra time! England are through to the quarter-finals of the World Cup. And Bobby Robson ecstatic. David Platt with his back turned to goal with a swivel striking the ball on the volley past Prudhomme. Ran off towards the touchline, arms up to be brought down in a bundle by Lineker, Wright, Pierce and Steve Bull. It was Lineker whose face was caught grinning at the camera as he turned around. England fans who were getting ready for the prospect of a penalty shootout were relieved. Gazza raised his fists in celebration and Chris Waddle and Terry Butcher were caught doing some sort of dance in the middle. Waddle, wearing a Belgium shirt, having swapped it with Nico Klassen, a former teammate of his. Bobby Robson done a jig of delight in the dugout. It was Platt's first international goal after only arriving on the England scene in November of 1989 as a substitute in a friendly against Italy. In fact, he was sub against Ireland and Holland. If England thought they'd made hard work of this, there was more to come a few days later. Whilst we all like a bit of excitement, let's hope that the game between England and Belgium in Kaliningrad this summer doesn't leave us biting our nails like this one did. So that's about it. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's gone on for a bit longer than I'd anticipated. But thank you to Kalichi Bernard and to Kevin Miles for being part of the show. Links to both of those guys can be found on our Facebook and Twitter pages, uh, which is where you can also go to join in the conversation. Don't forget to send your 30-second reviews of the game versus Nigeria. Get your phone out, open up the voice recorder, and email it to 3 at gmail.com. Perhaps you'll be on the next podcast. And if you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe. And if you feel inclined, a few kind words go a long way. Chance of a beer if we happen to meet up. Wink, wink. I'm off for a bit of a break, but I hope to be back to review Nigeria, our young lions and lionesses, preview Costa Rica, and hopefully not talking about any more injuries. Until then, take care. <laughs>